You are listening to On Human Rights, where we bring you interviews with experts and others about human rights and international humanitarian law. On Human Rights is broadcasted from the Raoul Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and International Humanitarian Law in Lund, Sweden. I'm Sandra Jacobsen, and today's podcast is a presentation by Professor Manfred Novak. He is an Austrian human rights lawyer who served as United Nations Special Rapporteur on Torture from 2004 till 2010. And these interviews go deeper into his experiences during those six years that he spent reporting on torture. Impressions that later led to a book named Torture, an Expert's Confrontation with an Everyday Evil. In this podcast, you'll hear more about Mr. Novak's personal thoughts about the assignment, whether torture is increasing or decreasing globally, and how states could prevent torture from happening. But we will start with why Mr. Novak came to work as a special reporter on torture in the first place. In fact, it started already very early, and I don't know really why, but uh, for people who start studying human rights, torture is kind of uh, an, a kind of a very strong example. If, if, if you ask people on the street what are human rights, many people would think first uh, it's the prohibition of torture or prohibition of slavery. They, they kind of, they have very strong human rights violations. Um, and uh, I already, when I studied at, at Columbia University, I, I had an excellent uh, human rights teacher, um, and I wrote under his supervision a, a big seminar paper on torture in um, national socialism and Stalinism. So comparing a bit the two main totalitarian regimes of the of the time between the two world wars, and uh, it always remained part of because, as I said, the coup d'état in Chile was becoming fame, becoming famous for enforced disappearances to some extent, but also torture. So systematic practice of torture against left-wing opposition and um, my first uh, survivor of torture whom I interviewed for a left-wing Latin American periodical that we edited at, at that time in the, in the 1970s um, was a refugee from, from Chile whom I interviewed about his experiences and I actually realized that I couldn't stand uh, his uh, descriptions of what he had gone through so I really had to to break up the interview in the middle because I really didn't feel well. So at that time I didn't think that I would ever be able to to, to work so much on, on torture. But later we, we found it uh, in early, I think it was 1980 or 81, the Austrian Committee for the Prevention of Torture, which worked very closely together with the Swiss Committee for the Prevention of Torture, um, and which was the main um, the main proponent of a system of preventive visits to places of detention as a way of preventing torture and other forms of ill treatment, which resulted later in the European Convention for the Prevention of Torture and much later in the United Nations Optional Protocol to the Convention Against Torture. And we were very much really fighting for this system because uh, we were, and I am still, convinced that unannounced visits to places of detention are a very effective tool 
to prevent torture, of course, also to report about uh, the conditions of detention. But uh, if it's done well by an independent national preventive mechanism, it can really, it can really have an impact. So, um, in that sense, um, that was very much what I or. or part of my work that I did in the in the 80s 90s until 2002 when the when the optional protocol was um, uh, was adopted and at the same time I was an expert on enforced disappearances so I was for eight years in the 90s in the in the UN working group on enforced disappearances and uh, later became independent expert to prepare actually the ground for the UN convention on enforced disappearances and then advise the working group until it was adopted in 2006 and Enforced disappearances and torture are very, very closely connected uh, because usually people who are kidnapped in order to make them disappear, whether they are killed or not, they are heavily tortured. Mm. This book that you wrote about, it was more um, where you wanted to express your personal thoughts about that. Mm -hmm. Could you tell me a bit about, was it after you you f like finished as a special reporter? Was it during that time? No, I did write... Um, And actually, I even started, or the idea started when I was here, Olof Palme professor in at the University of Lund, um, that I was asked by Oxford University Press to write a commentary on the Convention Against Torture. So that was before I had been appointed as Special Rapporteur on Torture. And that, of course, helped me very much because I did, on the one hand, this academic research on the Convention, which I could use in my practical work as Special Rapporteur on Torture, but also the other way around. My practical work uh, really provided me with so much experience that I then reflected also in my legal analysis of, uh, of the different provisions. So that was parallel, uh, but... Um, After I finished uh, in 2010, um, it was a, an Austrian publishing house that came and said, would you not like to write down your experiences in a, uh, in a way that is not uh, for a highly sophisticated scientific public, but for the general public? What, what are your experiences? And I said originally, no, I have now dealt enough with torture. I want to do something totally different. But then she came back an hour, uh, a year later, and then I felt it's perhaps good to do it um, because um, of course whatever you have seen and uh, and all the impressions you had um, were not gone from one day to the other simply because you stopped working in this function so you had of course your 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 dreams and your uh, flashbacks and whatever so it was there in in your and uh, very strongly present and to write a book about this so country by country to really go through all the documents but also through my my diary my my, my photos etc uh, brought back many experiences and was good so I felt it was also good for me to write it down um, simply to um, to overcome some of the long-term 
kind of consequences uh, of, uh, of, of spending six years very intensively with uh, torture, the phenomenon of torture, but also torture victims and torture survivors. So, and at the same time, I felt it was... Um, um, informative, at least for the German-speaking world. And then much later, I was asked uh, <clears throat> that I, I should actually publish it in English so to reach a much broader audience. And uh, and that's what I did now with Pennsylvania Press. And it is, it, I hope it will, the, everything is ready. And I updated it, of course, also uh, to some extent. Um, and it should be published by the end of this year. Hmm. When you talk to people that survived torture, how is that like? That depends very much. No? Um, it depends on, on many different conditions. On the one hand, of course, for the victim of torture, it might be re-traumatizing. Hmm? If you really uh, underwent heavy torture um, that has a lasting effect you might have post-traumatic stress disorders for the for the rest of your life you need psychiatric and and medical treatment etc uh, and in this first phase it might be really re-traumatizing and then it's better not to not to speak about it on the other hand as i had a certain feeling I, I I should write about it also victims of torture feel there is somebody coming because very often nobody believes them no? um, and there's somebody coming who is specifically investigating torture um, that might be an incentive to speak secondly it depends if you are out of prison or out of the detention and you're perhaps out of your country you're a refugee you are no longer in in danger, uh, of course, you speak much more openly than if I come to a notorious prison or police station or military barracks where people are tortured every day, and I ask you, have you been tortured? No? Then you, you might be very much afraid that the very fact that you speak to me, even if it's purely confidential and we can ensure that nobody is actually watching us, still I can never hide towards the prison authorities that you were willing to speak to me. So I always, I, I, I come into a cell that might be a cell where 10 people are or 30 people or you are alone in there. Um, and I introduce myself, I say why I'm here. And then I'm asking you, uh, would you be interested uh, to speak in private with me? And at the same time, I'm telling you um, but you should also know that the very fact that you speak to me might lead to certain reprisals. So it's your decision. You don't have to speak to me. But of course, if you do, I'm happy because I, I would like to learn from you. And at the end, I tell them again. Now, that was an interview. I never recorded an interview because um, I had in, in earlier functions the experience that victims of torture are more afraid if uh, to speak out because it is yeah it, it is something very sensitive to speak about torture um, so if this is recorded this is some somewhere standing in between us so what we developed is this four eyes principle that um, 
they're always I'm always together with another person um, and if I conduct the interview I need the eye to eye contact I need uh, to build up trust you don't know me so that you believe that I'm truly honestly interested in, in finding out the truth that I'm not an agent or whatever so I have to build up this trust and the other person is taking notes and then with the next interview we change the roles no? um, so uh, that is um, something you really have to think about do I want to tell it do I want to take this risk and for instance to give you such, just some examples in China it was extremely difficult to get, I went in some prisons to I don't know how many different cells and uh, and introduced myself as the Chinese translator and uh, um, and uh, and said so is somebody interested to speak to me and people were simply not even looking up to me um, so it was there is it, it tells you a lot about the country when I went to Denmark nobody was afraid to speak to me um, but also when I went to um, to Equatorial Guinea, which was the worst country I have ever visited as special rapporteur on torture, where torture was really systematically practiced. Um, but it was a very remote country, even the ICRC uh, has been thrown out and, and nobody ever came there to a detention facility. Um, people were willing to speak and then at the end I was asking them but should I keep this anonymous uh, and or can I publish what you told me with your name everybody said no no please publish it with my name because anyway we are tortured whether you whether we speak to you or not we are tortured anyway and we will be probably more heavier tortured because we spoke to you but at the same time it might protect us because the outside world knows that I am here in this prison and that I have been tortured so perhaps the fact that you report this in an open manner might also protect you the last point is of course as I said before, torture is sensitive, no? and uh, um, in particular, if you think about sexual torture, uh, rape, and other forms of sexual violence, uh, whether against women or against men, uh, is something you don't want to tell to somebody else. So again. Um, we were making sure that we always had a mixed team of human rights experts, so I always tried to be with also, three others, one person from Geneva, from the Office of the High Commissioner of Human Rights, and two persons from the Boltzmann Institute of Human Rights in Vienna, and trying to always have two women and two men. So if you go to a prison, then the women go to the female prison and, and the men to the men. So or sometimes I go, I introduce myself, and then I say, if you want to carry out um, individual interviews, then these are my two colleagues who, who will do it. So women are easier in speaking even about very intimate forms of ill-treatment and torture to another woman. Man was my experience, if they have been raped or, or they don't like to talk about it at all. So it's very difficult to get it, whether I'm a man or a woman doesn't really make a difference. Hmm. Might be a difficult question to, to answer, but how many people do you think you talked to during your time in office? Thousands. So um, I made 18 official fact-finding missions and in addition I've, I've, I was traveling a lot and, and did other fact-finding but 18 official fact-finding missions to 18 different countries 
um, in, in old world regions. Now, on average, I mean, most of the time in these countries, I did spend in closed institutions and in these institutions speaking of course to the staff but also most of the time again interviewing um, detainees um, so usually I would say about certainly 20 institutions we uh, we certainly visited on average per permission so that makes already 360 institutions and uh, in every institutions I mean we split up also no? because we were more people so we had at least two teams sometimes we even had three teams going at the same time um, and it depends how long you are in a prison but you might you might speak to to 20 people uh, I mean you, you you speak of course also to groups no? you if you want to find out And usually it's the best if you come to a, let's say, to a bigger room where people are, are kept uh, and there are 50 people in there. Before I ask, would you individually like to do individual interviews, I ask some kind of general questions, partly to inform myself, partly also to, to establish a, a better relationship with the people. So that is about the food or um, what are the times when they have to get up and when they have to be locked in and when, when, when are they outside of their prison cells. Um, so this kind of channel, that's not so sensitive. No? Um, whether there are any general issues that they feel could be improved, what are the visiting times, how often can you be visited. This is something I can check then afterwards with the prison director. Usually they are not, of course, the prison director says the food is excellent and the detainees say it's terrible. But uh, but uh, in, in, in principle, that's not a, a sensitive question. So that you speak with, with, with many different people at the same time and you get the feeling about is this institution well managed or is it very badly managed, is it very repressive or is it a more open institution. Um, um, but then you, 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 you do individual interviews. But So again, 360 and uh, interviews we certainly did. Again, depends, but 20 interviews per, per institution. Um, sometimes 10, sometimes 30, so it's, so that, then we come already in the thousands, yes. Mm. And how do, um, like, police stations react when you come? Um, the fact that I am in the country is not secret. So I have to, of course, negotiate before with the government whether they would like to invite me. Um, they are not obliged to invite a special rapporteur. Um, so I, of course, if I say I want to visit a particular country, then I write a letter, I start uh, speaking to the ambassador in, in Geneva or wherever. Um, so I make contacts and then say, would you be willing? There are a number of countries that have standing invitations. So for instance, in, in, in Denmark, it was very easy. I, I, I simply met the, the ambassador of Denmark in Geneva and said, I would like to come in the next months and she said when would you like to come there as early as possible then she said okay I go back to Copenhagen and I ask uh, simply it's about the question of uh, to make sure that the necessary counterparts so that means 
whoever, the Minister of Justice or the Minister of Interior, or sometimes it's the Prime Minister, who, whoever I would like to see or who would like to see me, um, that is a decision uh, to be made, of course, by the government, uh, that those people are in the country and are available. So um, that is the main reason. But she managed within, I think it was not more than a, a month uh, later that I could visit the country. You know, with China, my pre predecessor, Sir Nigel Rodley, he started already 10 years before me and then was there from Boven and, and it all didn't work out because uh, they, couldn't, uh, they couldn't find an agreement. And I was the third one, so it took about 10 years and until I could visit China. Um, so that, that depends. Um, but then the time. So we agree on the time frame when I'm coming. We agree on uh, the dates and I try to keep that as short as possible. So only one or two days at the beginning. High-level meetings with the relevant ministers, the heads of the military or the heads of the prison system or the chief justice or this type of people. Um, I kept it fairly short because the government would like to for the whole week they have every day and, then, and I said no just at the beginning and then I'm not telling you anymore what I'm doing that is something we organize we the United Nations so the United Nations resident representative usually is my counterpart he or she is organizing whatever the cars and the drivers and and the whole logistics that you need um, we are very well prepared beforehand we know what are the most notorious kind of prisons or police stations or, or, or psychiatric hospitals or whatever um, and then we are developing uh, a plan how we are traveling in the country um, and um, and telling the government and that takes a week or two weeks whatever um, and then we are coming back and only the last day we have in the morning a debriefing of the government then we debrief the international community the ambassadors the, the international organizations and then we do a press conference um, and then we leave the country so that is the, the, the usual makeup of a um, of, of of a visit um, that means there's quite a long period in between when <clears throat> We choose, and very often, of course, there are some institutions we know from before, we would like to visit them. Might also be that we have specific information, specific individuals whom we would like to see. So, for instance, I often write um, an, an urgent appeal. No? So I receive some information that somebody has just been arrested, is brought to a notorious police station, is already being tortured or there's a serious risk. If I receive that, I send very quickly an urgent appeal to the government of the country telling them um, that that's the information I received, that they should investigate and if it's true they should stop it, whatever. So, of course, if I then afterwards visit this particular country, um, then I would like to see this person, to see whether it was true, whether he or she has been tortured or not, whether they have been released, etc. So, um, but usually that is some information you receive by NGOs beforehand and Human Rights Watch and Amnesty were extremely cooperative. They, um, for every bigger mission, they prepared, they prepared a specific 
documentation, a dossier that I received in just the day before I left. So with most recent information, then you meet, of course, NGOs in the country, they give you further information. But finally, you have to find your way yourself. So what I often did is that the, f the first visit to do, do a pre-trial detention facility, so a, a remand prison, where people come directly after they have been with the police. Hmm? So if you are arrested by the police, you are suspected of having committed a crime, um, then you are interrogated. It should not be longer than two days. Usually, of course, in most countries, it's much longer because they are torturing you. They are trying to get a, already a confession from you. Um, and then you are brought into a pre-trial detention facility and usually, often it takes years until you finally have your, your trial. Mm -hmm. um, so I go to a pre-trial detention facility and then I ask, can you please give me from the register um, the names of the people who arrived during the last week or the last two weeks? Mm -hmm. um, and they often said, why this? And I said, well, I would like to speak to them. No? Um, and then I speak to them. Big, why? Because they might still, if they have been tortured in the police, then they usually had still marks. I always had a forensic expert with me, so you can, uh, so th those are recent cases of torture. Um, and um, you can ask then them very precisely, when did it happen? At which police station did it happen? Can you still, do you know the name of the police officer who tortured you? Can you describe, can you draw me a sketch? How does the police office look like? Where are the cells? Where are the torture rooms? Where, where are the interrogations? Where is the interrogation taking place, etc.? So that before I then visit this police station, I have a very good idea where, because that you have, then you, if you go to a police station where torture is taking place, you have to be very quick so that you are not cleaning up the place, etc. No? Um, if you have all this information, it helps you no? and you know who is the, the police chief, who is the, the chief torturer, whatever, and you try to find those people. You might have even a, a very good description so um, so those are so and then and then they might say yeah we have not been tortured that much but there is this particular guy who is sitting in the cell really at the end of the corridor and he has been very very heavily tortured not then I know for whom I'm going to look no? hmm. I was thinking there are a lot of victims but is there any interest also from the UN to speak with the like the perpetrators, the yes. ones that commit the torture. Have you have you done that? Yes. Of course, you start already to speak to the Minister of Interior, the Minister of Defense. Uh, you speak to the police chief of the capital. You speak to so the highest people. Mm -hmm. um, I also always try in these first meetings to speak with individual prison directors. Mm -hmm. um, and the same is if you go to a prison, a bigger prison, um, it's a kind of a question of courtesy also, no? that at the beginning you are not immediately running into the cells. Uh, although, again, you always have to assess the particular situation. No? Uh, what they want is, okay, the whole team goes to the office of the director and then you get coffee and tea and, and something to eat and whatever and you talk about everything. In the meantime, they 
bring away all the persons who have recently been tortured uh, somewhere, hide them. No? Um, that is not what you want. So it depends. So sometimes, uh, yeah, you have to be careful, but still you have to speak to the prison director and you ask him. So one of the first questions that I always uh, put to a prison director or police chief no, is saying, okay, um, my task is to find out whether people here are ill-treated or tortured, uh, but you are the person in charge. So can you tell me in the last five years or last two years or in the last week, how many people have been tortured here? That's a fair question. So, And what did the answer? The answer is big eyes and saying, what do you mean? I mean, I mean, torture is, isn't torture absolutely prohibited? I say, yes, but that doesn't mean it's always complied with. No, 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 no torture. Also, I am here since 15 years, police chief, and as long as I am here, you can have my word. Mm. There was never one case of torture. That's the usual answer no? uh, you get, no? Then you ask others and so on. Then you go and speak to the detainees and they say, okay, every day there is torture and these are the people. Does the prison or does the police chief know? Of course he knows. He's ordering it or he's standing next to the person. Usually the chief doesn't torture himself. But um, so um, it's this, so, of course. And then when you finalize in a particular, can I give you an, an, an example in the head of the, the main criminal police department in Amman, in Jordan, hmm? uh, where we came late in the evening at 11 o'clock or so, so he had to rush in to, to, to come. Um, and, uh, and we had found terrible cases of, of torture, people half dead. Uh, in the in the basement, no? and then finally that was after midnight. In the meantime, the three highest police chiefs of Amman, so of Jordan, have been arriving, and they're all sitting there. No? And then you put, and here I didn't speak to them before. I went to the and I said, but I put the same question. I said, how many cases of torture did did you have in the last? in the last weeks or so. No, of course, again, nothing. And then I said, okay, um, I just interviewed a couple of people who were heavily tortured. No, that can't be. Let's go down, I can show you. I can show you the people. Um, and then you go down, in the meantime, of course, they have, they have put them away. So, um, what I then said is, I mean, I have taken photos. I have just interviewed those people. My forensic doctor can tell you what he found, that this person need urgent medical treatment, etc. So I don't want to play these games. I want that the person is back tomorrow morning. And if not, then I just quit the mission. Then I, I leave the country and say that you are not cooperating. Um, that usually helps, or often helps, not always, but usually it helps. Um, in China, I had three times to really threaten to, to, to stop the mission and go home. Um, but in Jordan, it helped. They, they brought him back and he was heavily tortured. And then we agreed in the night, I said, okay, if you don't believe my forensic doctor, you bring the head of the forensic department of the main hospital in, uh, in Amman, 
this person can come and they together, the two of them will investigate this person. And of course they found out that he was heavily tortured. Um, so that is proof that you need. Um, and then of course I say there should be, there should be some kinds of consequences. Hmm? So to come back to your question, of course, if people tell me, um, I have been tortured yesterday by a guy named the nickname or the real name, whatever, of course I try to speak to this person. In general, it's simply denial. It's very seldom. In Nepal, I had a few cases where I really had to push very heavily. So it was a similar situation in the, the, the main police headquarters in Kathmandu. Um, yet again, in the basement are the cells, the torture is taking place on the top floor, and the, the, the chiefs were sitting somewhere in the second, third floor. No? Uh, and at the end, um, again, I asked them, I said, how many cases of torture did you have? None, of course. And then I, I said, uh, but I can show you, I mean, that's the advantage again, if you take photos. No? If you take photos and the forensic expert has very specific photos of your scars that you have and then you load them on your laptop you can do that very quickly and just show him um, so there uh, there was this I wrote it in my book as well because it's it's kind of a, um, a classical saying so saying that then the I think the second of the of the second highest in command said uh, yeah I mean yeah I mean we don't torture everybody uh, but uh, sometimes a little bit of torture helps no? so that was so this a little bit of torture helps was of course um, and then I said and then I looked at the chief and I said do you agree with this and he simply was nodding so you have this kind of of then uh, I mean, but in a situation where they feel the evidence that I have is so overwhelming that it simply doesn't make sense anymore to, to lie. No? But usually, they always lie. If torture takes place, I have never seen from the beginning that I come to a country um, where you ask this question, they said, yes, in the last year we had, I don't know, 20 complaints, and, uh, uh, and of these 20 complaints, we had in 10 cases torture was established, and the people have been brought to justice, and they are serving a prison sentence or whatever. That's what I would expect from a, a country that is a state party to the Convention Against Torture, that's their obligations, and torture can take place in every country. I mean, it's, uh, uh, you have bad apples everywhere, um, that you take the necessary steps. No? If, I, if I'm a special operator on, I don't know, on, on, on the right to education, or, or then, I mean, then it's much easier. You, you ask the question, uh, what's your school enrollment rate? How many kids are not enrolled in primary school? Why not? They would not hide this. They would give me the statistics. They would, uh, if I ask for Deutsche statistics, it doesn't, doesn't exist simply. No? Um, and uh, then I say, but don't you have kind of uh, um, mechanisms is there not a complaints mechanism if 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 i am here and i feel that somebody tortures me to whom can i go can i complain yeah yeah of course we have yeah, yeah. then uh, can you show me the how many complaints did you receive yeah no, since i am here i haven't i haven't heard any complaint no? um 
And I said, but why? Yeah, because there's no torture. Can it not be that they are afraid if they are complaining to you? No, 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 no. So it's it's kind of it's it's a cat and mouse game. You always are confronted with lies from the authorities, but at the same time, the authorities want to make you believe the ones who are lying are those criminals. No? So because they call them all criminals, even if there's something called presumption of innocence. No? But they are arrested because they're accused of a crime. No? And of course, they all make up torture in order to kind of, uh, because that would be the easiest to get free, which is totally nonsense. Um, because if I'm really not tortured, and I accuse people of having been tortured, then I really take a big risk. No? Um, and it doesn't really help me. So it's, it's and, and if I'm already sentenced for something, it doesn't help me at all. So, but that is what you hear. I mean, you shouldn't believe those people. I said, I've, I don't believe everything what they're telling me, but uh, I try to find out the truth. And, uh, and if you have a forensic expert, that uh, we will look whether the story that this person tells is plausible and whether the, the, the injuries that we find are corroborating this evidence, etc. So, uh, I mean, there are objective ways and means to, to verify what actually happened, but the perception is a totally different one. And that's not only now in dictatorships in, in Africa or, or Asia. Um, that is uh, in my own country, in Austria. Um, there, at least that you can have the statistics. There you have uh, whatever. Sometimes you have 300 complaints about, not torture, but ill treatment, ill treatment by the police. No? Uh, but finally, there is no independent body to immediately investigate. So it's again the police investigating because it's a crime. No? If I if I say somebody tortured me, I accuse somebody of a crime. No? So who is investigating this crime? The police. No? So the police is investigating against their own their own. Uh, Colleagues. Colleagues. No? Um, uh, so that's why they say that we should not investigate again. So we should immediately go to the uh, to the prosecutor's office. So they have 24 hours and then it goes to the prosecutor. The prosecutor takes some time. and uh, So from those 300 cases, perhaps, I don't know, 10 where the, the prosecutor would really get into an in-depth investigation. And then perhaps there are three uh, persons who, who are actually uh, really charged with, with, with a crime and usually nobody is sentenced because that is so long later that you, you, you simply, it's so difficult to prove it. If you are not immediately brought to a forensic expert or to a judge, if you, if you complain about torture, it can easily be covered. So I was thinking also um, a quick question whether does torture increase or decrease? That is very difficult to, to say. Um, it certainly has not decreased. Whether it increased, I also am not so sure. But our ways of investigating torture are getting better. So when the first global report of torture was published by Amnesty International in the early 1970s, I remember that still very well, because they spoke about in 60 countries of the world, torture is practiced. Um, I 
selected these 18 countries not on the basis of really only going to the worst countries. I tried to have a fair balance. So that's why I also included, so from every region I had four European countries, four from the European Union, Denmark, plus Greenland and Greece, and two others, Georgia and, and Moldova. I had a, one from the, from the Arab region was Jordan, one from the um, Central Asian region, Kazakhstan, and then quite a number from in, in Asia, and then a few in Africa, Latin America, and the Pacific and the Caribbean. So small states, big states, very repressive states, and very open democracies. So I think it's a fair... It's about 10% of the, the, the member states of the United Nations um, and a fair representative sample of that. From those 18 states, only one, and that is Denmark, I found no evidence whatsoever of torture, not even any serious complaint. Um, so I can say torture does not exist in Denmark, and if it is a... It, it must be really a bad apple, but uh, even then it would be investigated. And so um, that means in 17 out of 18 countries there is torture. Sometimes a few cases, isolated cases, but I found torture. In some countries I really hoped I would not find torture. And at the beginning it looked quite well, and then as deeper I went, as more I found evidence of torture. In certainly more than half of the states, and that means we have 193 member states, also almost 100 states, I would say torture is widespread. And in two out of the 18, I found systematic practice of torture. That's the worst. If it's really a governmental policy or it's very widespread and the government doesn't care. That's, that was only in my time, Nepal and Equatorial Guinea. But that in more than half of the countries, torture is fairly routinely widespread practice. That shocked me. Mm. But I cannot really... I cannot really compare because my methods of investigation were different than of my predecessors. Um, and um, so you, you, even if you if you would find out what did Nigel Rodley and what did uh, Peter Kreumann, who was the first one, find, it's, it still doesn't really make it comparable. Okay. So my feeling is it, it did not decrease and in recent years it might even have increased and that is partly also due to the policies of the United States of America. So the Bush administration and now with Trump, we don't know yet too much, but uh, um, not because they tortured so systematically, I mean they tortured heavily and uh, um, and we did investigate Guantanamo Bay and secret places of detention. Uh, but much more uh, seriously is that they undermine the absolute prohibition of torture. So torture was always practiced and it was always denied. And it was for the first time, Israel was another case where they, in the 90s they tried to legitimize certain deep interrogation techniques. But uh, the Bush administration also said we are not torturing. But at the same time, they really legitimized torture. They said in the 
in the case of a ticking bomb scenario or whatever, it's the lesser evil if you if you are a bit tougher, um, how you whether you call this not torture or inhuman treatment, it doesn't really make a difference. But uh, waterboarding is, of course, a clear form of torture. Um, and that had a very negative effect. That, uh, for instance, when I came to Jordan and spoke to the to the Speaker of the Parliament, uh, the first question was, but why are you investigating torture in Jordan if even the United States, the, the ones who have invented human rights in the 18th century and the ones who are always preaching to others that they should comply with human rights, if they openly torture, so they have terrorists, we also have terrorists, and of course, uh, yeah, times are changing and uh, we have to be tougher and uh, so in that sense I think in the the whole fight against terrorism really constitute a paradigm shift also in the in the way how people look it's no longer the worst of the worst crimes it is something that you have to balance against other values mm. and that leads me on to my final question um, how does one most effectively prevent torture from happening Um, it is possible. Um, Amnesty International has years ago have had a list of 12, uh, 12 kind of practices that if they are all or, or guarantees uh, that would actually prevent torture. Of course, the first is torture usually takes place not after you are convicted. It, it takes place because the police um, wants a confession so uh, there's a lot of pressure it's it's the non-functioning of the of the administration of justice there's some there's a crime happening there's a lot of pressure by prosecutors by judges by the media by the public uh, by by politicians on the police you have to clarify this you have to solve this case and the police usually in most countries is not well equipped is not well educated doesn't have sophisticated methods of evidence taking so what they are doing is they're looking around who looks suspicious the poor the the, the homeless the ones who already before have been convicted of, 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 of some kind of petty crimes and they arrest these people and beat them up until they confess that's so and then they keep them quite long so I think you have to You have to keep the police detention as short as possible. Secondly, immediately have access so that the person who is arrested should be allowed to inform family members and the family members should have immediately access, should be allowed to immediately ask a doctor. Uh, so ideally it would be that uh, if you come into a police station you have a medical check and if you're leaving a police station you also have a medical check and if in the meantime there are injuries that you got this is a strong kind of indicator so it is the, a shift of the burden of proof then the police would have to prove how you got those injuries um, that would help so immediately when you're left to after the police you're brought before a judge you should not go to a judge where one police officer is standing and the one is standing there you should be alone with the judge in most countries the police officer is going with you yeah you are not you know that afterwards you're brought back to the police you're not telling the judge yesterday they tortured me um, so you must have the possibility of complaining secondly um, that um, Of course, uh, 
we need training, we need better trained, better equipped, better paid police with who also learn that there are other ways of of proving crime like DNA or like uh, like fingerprints. I mean, many police in the world they have never they don't have fingerprint machines uh, and and many other ways that you can find out who committed a certain um, a certain crime. What they do in some countries is video, audio, or better even videotaping interrogations or interviews with um, a suspect and that only this can be used in court. Um, so there's in, in general, whenever you, you allege that a certain confession you made before the police was extracted by torture, then this evidence shall not be admissible in court. And of course, if you have, it's again not a hundred percent proof because you can torture him before, um, and then say, and now I videotape your your confession. And if you are not confessing when I videotape, you get a, a stronger torture. So there are always ways and means, but. If it's clear that only this kind of confessions or this evidence during the interrogation can be used in court, it again helps. Um, there are so this whole method of of, of interrogation. There are, there are various ways and means. Then, of course, you need to have uh, an um, independent monitoring of all places of detention, what we call this national preventive mechanism. If this is really independent and coming very regularly, it helps. But also within a prison, you should have independent people who are stationed there, who are there in order to receive complaints and in order to speak to the people and who have the trust of the people who are somewhere in between and who would immediately report this to the prison director. I am 100% sure that every police, every chief of a police station is able to eradicate torture. If there's a no zero tolerance, also, also no zero, no, zero tolerance, yeah. Zero tolerance for torture, uh, then, um, yeah, you have to, yourself, you have to be sure about the stuff that you have. And if you as a police chief, are going around and you have the, the trust of the detainees, they can tell you, but yesterday this guy was beating me up um, and you can show to the detainees that you immediately take action, um, then you can eradicate torture in your in your police station. Um, and the same is in every prison, etc. So it's it's a question of command responsibility. If you really if from the top you say we are not tolerating torture and you tell all your stuff, if you see that your colleague is torturing, you should not back this person. You should immediately report this to me. Uh, then uh, people are getting afraid. Uh, and I will take action afterwards. I mean, very often the action, if they really have a case of torture, then they say, okay, we took action. And I asked them, but what kind of action? Yeah, he was not promoted for two months, etc. That's what 
often the police chiefs feel that is the proper way of reacting to torture. And I said, no, you, this person has to go to court and should be sentenced mm -hmm. to a long-term prison sentence because torture is one of the worst crimes. So there's a whole list of uh, habeas corpus proceedings, etc., um, that um, if they are really followed, whatever is written in the covenant on civil and political rights in the in the in the convention against torture if that is really um, implemented you can uh, you can prevent torture and Denmark is for me a very good example which not only there is no torture but also the highest standards of conditions of detention um, it's a different it's a different attitude the same is in, in in Sweden or very similar is it in Sweden I was not officially visiting but when I was professor here I went with students and, and others we went to some prisons in in the south of, of Sweden which were similar to the prisons I found in in Denmark hmm. so it's possible That was Professor Manfred Novak, an Austrian human rights lawyer who shared his experiences from his six years as he served as the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Torture. My name is Sandra Jacobsen and this podcast is brought to you from the Ralf Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Lund, Sweden. Stay tuned for more interviews regarding human rights issues on our website. <laughs>